So the series is called Goliath Must Fall. Can we say that together? It's at kind of the end of the day. Can we just say that together? Goliath Must Fall. Ooh, that felt like you want Goliath to go down. I like that. Um, I, I love summer. One of the reasons I love summer is because I can uh, walk about freely with no shoes on. And that's pretty awesome because for a lot of my adult life, I was plagued by something that is so gruesome and awful that I don't want to talk about it in public. And when I do, you'll wish I hadn't. But for a lot of my adult life in the summertime, I did not want to take my shoes off. Because does anybody know what I had? I had, I I hate to even say the word. It's just an awful, gross word. It's a grotesque idea, but here's what it was, okay? I had um, toe fungus, okay? Do you know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That kind of yellow stuff that gets under your toenails and then they build up to the thickness of claws and then they kind of curl up on the end of your toes and it's just nastiness. I had that. It started on one toe. I don't know where it came from. And then it spread to all the toes and, and it was uncontrollable. You could file it down. You could soak them in salt water. You could pour vinegar on them, do all the online cures you can think of. But they were just like, ah, we're here. And so for me, if I went to the beach in the sand with the toes, I mean, I'd keep them down under the sand the whole time. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's just like, yeah, I'm doing fine. You're doing fine. In the water, out of the water, under the sand. Pool, a little more complicated. Maybe the beach towels down there or put the shoes on. No sandals for me. Uh Uh-uh, no way. No flip-flops. I'm wearing shoes all summer long. And finally, after years and years and years of the plague and dreading the summertime and everybody's chilling around in their cool sandals and, and, you know, everybody's free and barefoot. And I'm like, ah, I got the toe fungus, you know, it's terrible. I know. Anybody have, anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Thank you. Okay. You either have it or know somebody that was very proud and bold. And that was kind of scary. It's like, I have it. Yes, I do. (laughs) Woo. Amazing. Well, pay attention to the next part of this. Okay. Um, Anybody know anybody with the toe fungus? It's kind of scary because when they have it, you can't take your eyes off it. They're like, hey, how are y'all doing? Welcome to the cookout. And you're like. Hot dog? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So then I had seen this commercial on television. And it was advertising this medicine that could get rid of the toe fungus. And somehow I just thought, "Ah, I don't know if that probably doesn't work. But at some point I got so sick and tired of the summertime blues that I said to my doctor one day, I said, hey, do you have the medicine for the toe fungus? He said, yeah, I've got it. It's easy. You can take it. I got to do a test on you to make sure you're you're fine with the medicine. But I was, and he gave it to me. He said, it's going to be like, I don't remember exactly how many, like 90 days to take it all the way to the 90th day. He said, you're not going to want to take it all the way, but take it all the way to the end. So I started taking the medicine. One week, taking the medicine. Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks of the medicine. Toe fungus is rolling as big as ever. I feel like it's like rising up inside of me going, hey, we don't care what you're taking, bro. We are here to stay. We're actually growing and not shrinking. And on a couple of toes, I thought it was getting bigger the more medicine I took. And I'm like, this isn't working. Maybe it's doing the opposite effect on me. Maybe I got some kind of genetic thing with the medicine. I'm taking it and it's telling the fungus, keep growing, keep growing. Like eight weeks, nothing. So I'm into like day 60 and I still got the plague. But I'm I'm just thinking, keep going to the end, keep doing it. Somewhere around day 75, I think the medicine got the upper hand for the first day. And I just felt something, a little something. I'm not saying, you know, it was anything special, but I'm thinking, I think something's happening. And I'm kind of looking, I said, I think something's happening. I mean, from day 75 to day 90, that medicine beat the ever-living daylights out of that toe fungus. And I mean, on day 90, I'm not kidding. I had 10 toenails. I'm talking normal color, clear, same shape they're supposed to be, not weird, gnarly, and curled up and looking at each other. And I was like, ah, this is 
amazing. And it happened right at the beginning of summer. I remember we went on a vacation, me, Shelly, my sister, my nieces, and we went to, to Florida. And I'm like, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm not wearing shoes. Is that not awesome? Check it out. Look at the feet. And they're like, yeah, they, they do look a whole lot better. And I mean, everywhere we went, I'm wearing sandals. I mean, for the whole summer, I never wore anything with a closed toe on it because I'm just like walking in a restaurant. It's like, hey, check that out. Do y'all want to see those? Are those not amazing? I'm propping my feet up on everything you can prop your feet up on. I'm going barefoot because I'm so excited that that fungus is gone. If you have the fungus, that's a giant that can go down. All you got to do is get the medicine and take it for 90 days. So if that was your giant, congratulations, you're done, you're good. God bless you. You can, you can go home now. The toe fungus will fall. You know, the interesting thing about that, it's kind of a, 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 kind of a non-threatening way to say this interesting in our lives that things will creep in. And then before we know it, they will establish a foothold in our lives. And before you know it, we are tolerating something that's actually way less than what Jesus intended for our lives. You know, Jesus didn't come onto this planet and do what he did so that we could live intimidated by giants in our lives. He didn't come to do the work he did so that things could move into our world and intimidate us and taunt us into settling for less than God's very best. Jesus said it this way. He said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Translation, that you might have abundant life. He wasn't thinking we were going to live low-level life, medium-level life, normal life, a life filled with all kind of giants that are dwarfing us and dwarfing him. He intended, Jesus did, for us to live free lives in the power of what he had accomplished for us. And so the title, Goliath Must Fall, it's an important statement for this series. As we're planning, our team kind of kicked around the ideas a few months ago, and we eventually started with Goliath Must Fall, worked ourselves to Goliath Will Fall, because that sounded hopeful and faithful and and truthful. You know, Goliath's going to fall, and we can all believe in that. But then as we kept working through the series, we, we moved back to this title because this title actually is the heartbeat of what the series is all about. And when you heard the title, even if you just got here tonight and you heard someone say, tonight, Goliath must fall if you have a giant in your life, something that's crept in and taken a foothold in your world, something that you now tolerate that's totally intolerable, but somehow it's got a place in your world. You knew what that giant was the first second you heard the title of this series. And you said, I know what my giant is. And what Jesus is going to say to us tonight, beginning in this first step and all through the weeks of this series is that giant, whatever it is, here's the bottom line for tonight. It is not bigger than Jesus. And for the sake of Jesus in your life and in this world, that giant must go down. You know, the backdrop for this, obviously, is the story that we all know so well of David and Goliath. If you've never been to church ever besides this first time tonight, you're like, yeah, I think I know that story of David and Goliath. And if you've been around before, I mean, we, we were brought up on this. How many of you can remember back to your earliest days of being in church and hearing the story of David and Goliath? Anybody like vacation Bible school, you know, v, uh, backyard Bible club, 
Passion Kids, Bloom, somewhere where David and Goliath is in there because it's such a compelling story and it has a little kid in it. So it's a perfect kid's story. And he's maybe teenage years, so it's a really good youth camp story, really good student group story. But the backdrop of the story, I think it's catch us all up, is that the Philistine army was fighting against the army of God, the army of Israel. The people of God. And this was a pattern all through the Old Testament. In in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, the Philistine army and the people of Philistia, the, the, the country, were always at war against God's people. And it was a representation of what we're feeling right now. The Philistines represented darkness. They represented godlessness. And obviously the people of God were the people of God. The people God had chosen to display his glory through on the earth. And there was always conflict between them. And a whole lot of the times in scripture, the Philistines had the upper hand. And that was the case when this story unfolds. It unfolds in 1 Samuel 17. The whole chapter is comprised of the story. And you know how it works, but I'll, I'll give you the lay of the land. So there's a valley called the Valley of Ella, E-L-A-H. And in that valley is the brook of Ella. And on each side is a hillside. And the Philistine army is camped on this hillside. And the God... Um, The army of uh, Israel is camped on this side. God's people are camped over here. And so they would camp in their tents and then come out to their places of battle. And in their places of battle on each hillside, they could stare right across the valley at each other. And it says in the story, 1 Samuel 17, every day, once they would take up their battle positions, that Goliath, this big, huge, giant Philistine, nine feet tall, champion fighter, fierce and awesome looking with massive armor all over his body, he would come out every day and he would taunt the army of Israel. He would walk right down into the valley, look right up on the hillside. So all his people are looking over his shoulder. He would look up at all of them and say, hey, here's the thing. Your God is not big enough to take on us. I challenge you, if one of you wants to fight me, come on down. We'll go man to man. And whoever wins, that army will serve the other army. And interestingly, the story says he did that for 40 days. So day after day after day after day, this trained army of the people of God, God's chosen people under King Saul, would sit on the mountainside, come to their battle positions, get ready to fight, get their armor, get in their positions, and then absolutely be shut down by one guy because he's nine feet tall and he's intimidating them, taunting their God, demoralizing them, harassing them, putting fear in their lives. And the scripture says when he would speak, they would literally like shake in their armor. He put that kind of fear in them. Isn't that sad that God chose these people He called them his own. He gave them his presence. He went before them with a a pillar of fire in the day and cloud, I mean, cloud in the day and fire at night. He had put the Ark of the Covenant in their midst. He met with them in the tent of meeting. I mean, God had come and done miraculous things time and time again for his people, but they somehow just didn't get it. They didn't understand that God was all powerful. And if they would just trust him and follow him and lean into him, that they would have access to that power in their life. So here's the people of God who've seen the power of God cowering because of a nine foot tall giant. 
Now, granted, I've never fought a giant before. I've never really fought another human being before, you know, at, at this stage of life. And, and I, don't, I can't say that I would go up against a nine-foot guy, but, but I probably would, you know, if the situation was right. And if he or she had threatened the, the people that I love, I might take a shot at it too, you know. But, but nobody was willing to enter into the fray. So every single day, the people of God are shut down by one voice. What an amazing thought. Think about what they've seen, what they've experienced in life. And they're letting one nine-foot guy shut down the entire army of God. But one day, David, little David, the shepherd boy, comes to bring supplies to his brothers who are in the army. And he comes up from his father, and he brings the supplies, puts them at the supply depot. The, the army is out in battle position. And so he says, where are my brothers? He said, they're, the, the guy there said they're already out in battle position. He said, well, I'm going to go check on them. So little David goes out to the front lines, and he finds his brothers. And they're kind of like, oh, my gosh, here he comes again. Here he comes again. They're looking across the, you know, the valley, ready for Goliath to come out. And at that time, just as David's saying hello to them, Goliath comes out, and he starts terrorizing and taunting the people of God. And David, I mean, just like... Bang, perks up, and he's like, what in the world is going on? And this giant is saying, who are you? You, you people who are putting your trust in, in the God of Israel. Let's know God. Our God is bigger than your God. And he's just terrorizing and taunting them. And David's heart just bursts inside of him. And he asks his brothers, he's like, what is going on? And who is this joker? I mean, that's not what it says in 1 Samuel, but that's the implication. He's like, you know, who is this guy? And what is he talking? What is he talking this about our God? And they're like, yeah, well, this is Goliath. And he comes out every day and does this. And nobody wants to fight him. And nobody wants to deal with him. And the little kid says, well, I'll fight him. And that's why they tell the story in Vacation Bible School. Because at that moment, everybody scoots up to the edge of their seat. Even if they know the story already, they're like, oh, this is going to be good. Little bitty scrawny kid, shepherd boy shows up. And he's going to fight nine foot tall dude with 125 pounds of armor on. And and a spear and a rod and a javelin and a shield bearer and his big helmet on. And he's just fierce, breathing fire, probably stunk, hasn't bathed, awful, uncouth, probably had the toe fungus. And I mean, he's coming out there, you know, and everybody's just shaking. And the little kid shows up and says, come on, nobody will fight him. Nobody. He's been 40 days in this business right here. I will fight him. And his brothers are like, you have lost your mind. You need to get out of here. But David hadn't lost his mind because David had been tending the sheep with God. He had been worshiping God in the, in the pasture. He'd been singing some of the Psalms that are in this scripture in the pasture, even as a teenage boy. He had defended the flock and seen the power of God in his life. He said, you know, one time a bear came and grabbed one of my sheep and I took my shepherd's rod and I beat the ever living daylights out of that bear. And then I grabbed it by its hair and killed it. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's pretty good. He said, God gave me the power to do that. And I did. And so he wasn't afraid. And finally, word trickled up to Saul. There's a kid here, and he wants to go at Goliath. And Saul said, bring him to me. So he brought him in, and he told him the story about the bear. And he said, and one time there was a lion, and it grabbed a sheep. And I took my rod, and I just crushed that lion and grabbed my sheep back. And then I grabbed that lion and killed the lion with my bare hands. By the power of God, he made that really clear. By God's power, I killed a bear and a lion. And Saul was like, okay, that's pretty 
good resume material right there. We're going to let you have a go at Goliath. You're going to get a turn. Nobody else wants a turn. You want a turn? You're going to get a turn. But we're going to put some armor on you first. So Saul put a couple pieces of his armor on. And poor David, you know, he couldn't hardly walk with the armor on. So he's like, this isn't going to work for me. I don't think I'm going to be able to work at this. We have to take this off. So he takes the armor off and says, I got to do it this way. And out of that river brook, he takes five stones in his sling, puts the stones in his shepherd's bag. And he goes out to face this giant. And you know the rest of the story. I wish we could build it up and it had a different ending. Like, and he pulled out a bazooka and he shot him in the leg and then one leg went off and then he came around and put him in a, you know, big wrestling move and choked him out, you know, and tapped him out. Everybody knows what happened. With one stone, he took down the giant. And the giant fell at his feet. Dead. Why is this story a major backdrop for the Christian faith? Is it so that we could have an incredible camp message? Is it so we could have an awesome flannel board talk for kids? Or is it because God wanted us to know that it is possible for nine-foot-tall behemoths in our lives that taunt and intimidate us day after day after day and seem to put the fear in us can go down with one shot, they can fall. And so he puts this backdrop into our story. It's not the only backdrop in our story. I've been doing my Bible reading in Kings and Chronicles, and in Chronicles, I came across this amazing passage, First Chronicles chapter 20, uh, some more giants. I, I'd missed them maybe the first couple of times reading this whenever the last time I was in First Chronicles 20, but look at it with me in verse 4. It says, in the course of time, war broke out with the Philistines. So here we go again, war with the Philistines at Gezer. And at that time, Sibachai, the Hushathite, that's why we don't read this stuff, killed Sipai. So Sibachai killed Sipai. Okay, you got that? Sibachai took down Sipai. And here's who Sipai was. He was one of the descendants of the Raphaites. And the Philistines were then subjugated. Now, the Raphaites were the people that Goliath came from. He wasn't a one-off. He wasn't like some kind of a, you know, concoction in a laboratory gone wrong. He was a descendant of a line of giants. There was a whole slew of giants coming, the Raphaites. And here was another one. And this other one's name was Sippai. And he went down at the hands of Sibachai. So David killed Goliath, but Sibachai took down this other giant. So we got two giants down on the scene right now. And then in verse 5, in another battle with the Philistines, Elhanan, son of Jer, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. I'm like, I forgot that Goliath's brother went down also. So there was two big giants in this family, and they both went down. God's not just interested in taking one giant down. He'll take all the giants down that are in our world. And so, bless their hearts, uh, Goliath's family lost two giants. And he had, Goliath the Gittite, had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. And still another battle, verse 6. Don't you love this? Which took place at Gath. There was a huge man. This is what really fired me up for this series. With six fingers on each hand with the fungus and six toes on each foot. And then I love this for the math challenge people. 24 in all. He was a descendant from Rapha. So he was one of the giants too. But this guy kind of got a little genetic 
funkiness going on. And he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet. So see him coming out at eight, nine, or 10 feet tall and holding up his hand with the spear and people going, oh my word, he's got six fingers. He's got an extra thumb on his hand. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. He's got an extra big toe on each foot. He has 24 fingers and toes. Yeah. And look what happened to him. He had 24 fingers and toes. He descended from Rapha in verse 7. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These were the descendants of Rapha in Gath. And they fell at the hands of David and his men. Second Samuel 21, there's another giant in the story as well. Four other giants besides Goliath went down. Why? Because God is wanting to give us a backdrop by putting an army that represents everything that is evil against the people of God who've been given everything they need to succeed. And in the battles, there were at times valiant men who would step forward and take the giant's down. And that is the heart of Jesus for your life tonight. Jesus' plan and will for your life is not that you go home and accommodate an elephant in the room, a big giant thing, something that has control of you, some bondage in your life, some attitude you can't shake, some character flaw that you can't seem to get over, some circumstance that's absolutely got a grip on you, some thought that's in your mind sunk its teeth into your thinking and you can't shake it as you move through your day. That is not the will of Jesus for our lives. And Jesus wants to ensure us tonight that he is completely and totally able to take down the giants in our lives. It may look like some six-fingered, six-toed, furious, foaming, fearless thing. And Jesus says, yeah, I just need you to remember that I put the backdrop in the story with a little kid named David so that you would know that whatever it is, it can, will, and must come down through the power of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You don't, you don't have to amen or clap. I'm just wanting to know, do you believe that Jesus is bigger than your giant? Because it has to start there. It has to start there. That little seed has to be planted right here and right now. There are three interesting twists that come out of this story in 1 Samuel 17. Twists for me from growing up in church And I think they help us understand how we can frame the approach we're going to take to five giants that we're going to start talking about next weekend. And as we look at each of the giants, we have to look through the frame of theology. And I know people are like, you know, we're always talking about theology. Well, theology isn't just brain matter. It's not just information. Theology is us understanding who God is, what God does, how God does it, and why God does it. That's what theology is. It's the study of, the understanding of God. And so before I'm going to go out against a nine-foot-tall giant in my life, something that's been camped out in my world for a long, long time, you know, something that even as a believer, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I love God. I believe in God. I believe in the gospel. I come to worship. I give into the house of God. I'm even serving in the house of God. 
I'm, I'm doing everything I know to do, but there's this one thing in my life and somehow I've just settled into the place of that thing is just going to be there. That thing is just going to stay. And God's big enough to do everything else, but God's not big enough to get that out of my reality. And that's what God wants to rearrange for us through the framework of theology, which helps us understand what's going on in this story. And the big twist in this story, and some of you are probably ahead of me on this, the first twist, number one, is this. We are not David in the story of David and Goliath. That's twist number one. For a lot of people, that's going to be a new news. Because all of our lives, every message we heard, we were David, right? Everybody, anybody ever heard a message where you were David and you were encouraged to get your five smooth stones and to get your sling and to put your stone in there and to get your thing going and get your aim just right and take down the giant in your life? Come on. And at the end of that talk, what happened? We got some courage up, right? We got some confidence up. We, we got a little extra willpower. We thought, okay, I'm going to go out there and do this. And it's an amazing message, especially for a youth camp or a conference where you got a couple thousand teenagers out there. And you come on, David was a teenager. You're a teenager. You can do it. Come on, David took down the giant. You can take down the giant. You can do it. And everybody kind of gets a little bit fired up and a little excited. I can do this. I can do this. I can take down a giant with one shot. But then at the end of the day, we go right back to the toe fungus and it doesn't work in our lives and the giant is still there. And here's why. Because we are not David in this story. That's a man-centered interpretation of the story of David and Goliath. You know who is David in this story? Jesus is David in the story of David and Goliath. Hello? We're not David. Jesus is David. And this is really good news for us because what we are in the story is David with Saul's armor on. That's what we are. We are trying to do something that's really impossible to do in our own strength in a human way. And human thinking is not bad thinking, but human thinking can't produce a supernatural result. And so we can't go, hey, we fight this way. Humans fight this way. We're going to put on the army armor and we're going to go out there and take down this giant. And, and God didn't want to do it that way. God didn't want to do it man's way. He wanted to do it God's way. He wanted to do it with a rock and a slingshot, not with a whole army fitted out with armor. And he didn't want David fitted out with armor. And he didn't want him to have a sword. He didn't want him to swing the sword and take the sword and kill him. He wanted to do it in a way that would show that it was the power of God. And so what did he do? He sent a little boy to the battlefield. Just like the father sent his son as a little boy into this world. The father, Jesse, sent David to supply his brothers, just like God sent Jesus into this world in Bethlehem, where David was tending the sheep, thank you very much, the very same place Jesus was born, in the same pastures of Bethlehem's field, Jesus, the Son of God, came to supply us with what we couldn't do on our own. And just like David came with the power of God, Jesus came with the power of God. And Jesus stepped in to fight our giants for us because Jesus is David in the story of David and Goliath. How many days did uh, the giant taunt the people of God? 40 days. And what does that number represent in scripture? It always represents a time of trial or distress and then the deliverance and salvation of God. So 4,440 in scripture, you always see trial and then you see deliverance. The Egyptians were in bondage for 40 years and then deliverance by the hand of God. 
By their disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then by God's power, they marched in on Jericho. And without raising a weapon, just a shout of praise, God supernaturally tore the walls of the city down. 40 always is the beginning point of God supernaturally doing what man cannot do. Jesus went into the wilderness to fast and pray before he inaugurated his earthly ministry for how long? For 40 days and 40 nights. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, what happened? He was challenged by the devil face to face, temptation in the wilderness in a weakened state. But the Holy Spirit came and gave him power. And with the word of God and the truth of God, he defeated the lies of the enemy. And then he came out of the wilderness after 40 days, walked right into the temple, opened the scroll of Isaiah, announced that the time of God had come, announced that this was the year of God's favor and began the process of delivering the people of God. 40 is bondage, 40 is trial, but at 40 is deliverance and salvation. And it's just interesting to me that little David didn't come on day 28, 29, 32, or 56. He showed up on day 40. So we would know that Jesus now has entered the story and there has been trial and there has been tribulation, but now deliverance is about to come. Salvation is about to come. God is about to do what only God can do. And that's exactly what is happening in this text. It's pretty amazing to see. In verse 46, this is what it says. This is David speaking to the giant. He says, this day, the Lord will hand you over to me. Isn't that awesome? Can we just say that together? Can we read that together? This day, the Lord will hand you over to me. Now that's impressive to me because the, 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 the giant's breathing all these threats down. He, he's so put off by this little kid. He goes, what in the world? You, you What? Hello? We got all these men up on the hillside and you're, what, what, how old are you? Like nine? What are you, 12? David said, yeah, this is what I am. And let me tell you something about me. God is about to deliver you into my hands. See, that's not the work of man. That's the work of God. That's the salvation and deliverance of God. And here's the story tonight. You are not gonna take your giant down by yourself. And God isn't asking you to. He's not asking you to sling up and get your rocks. He's asking you to understand that Jesus has come into our story to face up to our giants and to take them down. Jesus is David. Hello, is that a good news for anybody here? It's like, man, I've been slinging that thing my whole life and the giant's still in the living room, you know? So this is a good starting point for me because if it was, hey, you just gotta sling it faster, I was gonna be a little bit nervous because I've tried to sling it really, really hard all my life and it's not working. And it's not working because you're not David in the story and you're not the deliverer from your giant. The second big twist in this story that's really important for us to see is this, number two, that David's motivation in this whole thing was the fame of God. David was motivated by God's honor and glory. Do you see that in the story? David wasn't personally at threat. David's life wasn't at threat. He was just a little kid. He was just delivering supplies. He could have honorably said, oh my word, how tall is that guy? Nine feet tall? I've never seen anybody that tall before. He looks intimidating and I'm out of here. I'm heading back down to dad. I've delivered the food. It's in your tents. I'm checking out. See you later. And he wouldn't have been a coward. He wouldn't have been dishonorable. He would have done what every kid would do. He wasn't personally in danger. 
What motivated David was not that he felt threatened for his life. What motivated him was that this giant was cursing the God of the army of Israel. And he said, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What, what, all that other stuff you were saying? Okay, maybe. But when you start talking about my God, we're not tolerating that today. Are you hearing what he's saying right here? He's talking about our God. He's taunting our God. He's saying our God isn't God. What are you saying? Are you talking about our God? Okay, I'm gonna fight you now. Not because I'm, I'm threatened, but because God's glory is on the line. And I'm not having that. We are not having that. You are going to go down. In fact, you must go down because God's glory is what we're all about. You see, David loved God. He wasn't a paid soldier. He wasn't there out of obligation. He didn't get conscripted to be in the army. He wasn't there because it was what he ought to do. He just was running an errand for his dad, but he loved God. He had a relationship with his father out in the pasture He had praise on his lips in the pasture. He had seen the power of God in the pasture. And when he saw this giant, he went, hey, you might be nine foot tall, but listen, have you noticed the stars lately? Because I looked at them and said, man, when I consider the stars, the moon, and the heavens that you have made, what is man that you are mindful of him? Did you know my God made the universe and he made you? And yes, you're tall, but you're not taller than him. And when you start cursing God, you you cross the line right there, man. And you're going to have to shut it down and go down. And he was motivated by God's glory. Now listen, this is very important for you to see this and for me to see it. God does want you to be free. If there's something that has a hold on your life, some bondage that has a hold on your life, and your thinking, on your behavior, on your pattern of life, then God does want you to be free. That is what deliverance is all about. But here's what we can do if, we don't, if we're not careful and we don't see the full story. We will get God to participate with us to give us freedom. And we'll forget that we are participating with God to give God glory. We will turn the gospel around and say, God, I need you to come into my situation and take down my giant so I can be free and live the life I wanna live. And we'll forget that God does want to come into our situation, hello, and take down our giant and cause us to walk free and have the life that he wanted us to live. But he wants to do that so that his name can be exalted above every other name. And our world, the people around us would look at our life and go, your God is the God. Your God is truly God. So our freedom, watch this, our freedom and God's glory are inextricably wound together. And they always are present at the same time. So Jesus gave his life on a cross, what? To set us free. But he also gave his life on a cross to glorify God. When he went to stretch out his arms, he wasn't just saying, man, I want Louis to be free. This is all about Louis being free. This is all about Louis having a wonderful life and, a, and, a, and an abundant life. That's what this is all about. No, he was saying, hey, Louis, you're about to get swept up into something amazing right here because all your chains are about to be broken and they're gonna be broken so that everybody on this planet will know that the God of Israel is the one true God. There is no God like him in this world. He is a God of mercy, of kindness, of grace, compassion, love. He is a God who does 
does not hold our sins against us. He is just, but he's also the justifier. So he can be truly just, but then offer his son as a substitute and a sacrifice so that then he can be just, but then justify all of us who went wrong. No, God's going to do that. No, God's going to enter humanity. No, God's going to step down out of heaven, but the God who is the God alone in the heavens. And he says, here I go, Father. I'm going to set Louis free. I'm going to set all the people free, but this is for you. This is for your glory. This is to show the world how amazing you are, that you are the Lord and there is no other. And then Jesus stretched out his arms to free us and to glorify God. And they both happened at the same time. And as long as my motivation is only half of that equation, man, I got to get rid of this thing. This thing is problem. This thing is trouble. This thing is slowing me down. This thing is killing my relationship. This thing is killing my heart. This thing is killing me. This thing is going to kill me. I've got to get rid of this thing because I don't want it to kill me. I don't want it to sap the life out of me and our house and our relationship and my future and my career. I got to get rid of this thing. As long as our motivation is only half, we're missing half of the motivation. And God wants us to step into that place of understanding that we're fighting for our freedom, but we're also speaking up for his glory. And when we do that, we agree with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you say, God, I want to be free, but I also want you to be glorified because this thing's demoralizing me, but this thing is diminishing your glory. How does it do that? Because it's telling you every day that your God isn't big enough. It's telling us every day, every day it's there. It's saying, hello again, guess what? You can praise all you want to, but your God's not big enough to get rid of me. And you go, yeah, kind of right on that one. Or he is, but I don't know why he doesn't. Or maybe he's going to one day, but it's not gonna be today. And when we do that, it diminishes God's glory in our life. And I'm telling you, you can't hide that from your friends and you can't hide that from your family. You can't hide that from the people you work with. And it diminishes the glory of God. There's an extra motivation in our hearts when we say, I want to be free. But God, I want you to be glorified. This, this, this Goliath, it must go down because you must be lifted high. Ever start talking to your giant like that? Not, hey, you know, you're bothering me. You're annoying me. You're sucking the life out of me. You're strangling me, but hey, you're robbing God. And I don't believe we're going to tolerate that. When it was just about me, that was one thing, but now I'm realizing this is about God and that's something else altogether. It's just like, you can talk bad about me, but you talk bad about my wife. I'm, I'm going to have an issue with that. You talk bad about my family. I'm going to have an issue with that. You talk bad about somebody that I love. I'm going to rise up more, even than if you talk bad about me, because my motivation is different. And that's what God is saying. You know, this, we talked about this a lot here, but I'm just going to bring it back in one more time. But that one of the other great encounters of the Philistines and the people of God in battle was that battle where our six steps name comes from. They all came down to this great valley once again to have a, a major collision and a combat. And, and it looked like the people of God were going to get wiped out. And so a couple of the, the priests went back up to the place of worship and got the Ark of the Covenant and brought it down to the battlefield as if to say, hey, we're bringing God's presence down here and we're going to kick y'all you know, all the way back up to where you came from because now we got the Holy Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. And when the Ark came down, the Philistines were like, uh-oh, this could be trouble. We've heard about this Ark. But God wasn't in on the plan because the hearts of these men were wicked. And he let them fall prey into the hands of the Philistines that day. And not only did the army get wiped out, the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant 
of God, took it back to their cities, Ekron and Gath and the other major cities in, in Philistia. And they, they took it ultimately to the temple of their God, Dagon, the God they worshiped, a big idol, a big stone idol called Dagon. And he had a big temple. We talked about it. That's the place where Solomon, at the, I mean, uh, Samson at the end of his life pulled that temple down. That was Dagon's temple. And so this story always weaves through between the Philistines and the people of God. And God always shines through at the end of the day as a deliverer for his people. So they brought the ark into their church, put it in front of Dagon as a way of just taunting God, just like Goliath. Ha ha, there you are. Nice little shiny ark of the covenant with your cherubim and all your beautiful glory. And we just got good stuff in there. But look, we got Dagon and Dagon is amazing. But here's the thing. They all went home to party that night after thinking that they had showed whose God was who. And when they came back the next morning, their God was fallen over face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant of God. Hello. So they spent the day putting Dagon back up. They did. They, they set him back up. A little tremor came in the night. Can't you love God doing that? We need a little rumble right there. Thank you. Thank you. Just right there. Awesome. A little more. A little more. A little more. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> so they propped Dagon back up. You know what happened the next night? After they got him back up, they went home, partied again the next night. Yeah, our God's bigger than your God. They came back the next day to the church, and Dagon was on the ground again. And this time, for good measure, his head and his hands had been cut off. Okay, who has, you know, a cement saw a rock cutter who can show up in the night and clean cut the head off of this thing and the hands off of this thing and to to add insult to injury the head and the hands were piled up on the threshold of the doorway where you entered into the church so here came all the philistines the next day like hey man we got dagon back up yesterday it's pretty cool i don't know what happened he fell over but we got him back up they come to this day and they're like oh look out okay what's that and they're stepping over the head and the hands of their god to get into their church you know why because god is real serious about his glory and when there was nobody to defend his glory he defended it himself don't you love that he's like oh you're gonna put me in here with that piece of stone for real Spent all day putting it back up. He just went, took men all day long to get that thing back up. And the next day he's like, what y'all think about that? You want to try to put those back on, come back tomorrow? I will pave a driveway 10 miles long out of gravel. I will turn this guy into powder. I will put him into small pea gravel that you can put in the bottom of an aquarium. I'll take this as far as you want until you understand that I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or share any of my praise with idols. I am not going to sit here and be taunted by a rock. I don't care how tall it is, it must go down. And David had that heart and he had that motivation in his life. Look at the end of this verse that we were reading in uh, chapter 45 and 46. So again, verse 46, it says, this day the Lord will hand you over to me. And then here we get involved. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beast of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves 
For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now, this is where it got interesting, because first it was, hey, you're going down. And then David, in the power of God, just looked up on the hillside, and, and all the rest of you are going down with him. Little kid, you, you're going down. You're shutting up. And all y'all, bird food. Today. And then he took that sling. And with one rock, the scripture says it sank into the forehead of Goliath. This is trouble. Cracked into his skull and knocked him dead. And he fell over. Done. And the word of God amplified out of the valley of Ella. There is a God, and he is the God of Israel. He is the one true God. So the third thing that comes out of this in our frame, and we'll use this on every idol that we talk, every um, giant that we talk about, but the third frame is this, and it's we've got to come and understand where we just left off, that your giant is dead. Your giant's dead. Now, this is theology again, because it doesn't make sense in time and space, because you're like, you know, Louis, he's not, because he was like uh, demoralizing me today. He was taunting God today. Um, You know, I I actually kind of been under this giant's control today, so he's definitely there. He's definitely real. It's definitely got power. It definitely has a hold on me, and all that may be true in 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 the span of time and space, but outside of time and space, we have to understand this today. Jesus finished the work on the cross, and he destroyed and defeated the enemy and rendered Satan powerless in his death, burial, and resurrection, and he's never doing that again. So we're not going to roll up and say, hey, I've got a giant. And Jesus is going to say, oh, okay, I'll go die for your giant. I'll go down to the depths for your giant. I'll be raised up on the third day to give you victory over your giant. That's not going to happen. Jesus died one time for all time, defeated all of sin, all of death, all of hell, all of darkness. And it is finished and it is done. And our giants are dead. They're dead. And, I, and you're like, no, hang on a second. Because you're like, well, hello, I, I, that sounds great. The preach is really great, but my, my giant is very much alive. And that's true. Your giant is dead, but it still can be deadly. It may be dead, but it still can be deadly. It's like killing snakes. You ever killed snakes? You ever killed snakes before? I know we don't want to talk about snakes, but can we talk about them just for a second? We're going to camp this week. When, when we used to go to camp at First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia, we went to Hilton Head, South Carolina, not staying in a condominium. We didn't go to Harbor Town, uh, but we went to the Presbyterian camp, which was in the, in the jungle. When I say the jungle, I mean the jungle. This is in the 1970s before most of what you've seen at Hilton Head Island has been imagined. And we would go, this is not on the beach side, it's on the other side of the road. You drive in this little driveway, you kind of go in to the camp and there was a little place to eat and there was a little chapel for about a hundred people and there were like five girls' cabins in the woods and five guys cabins in the wood and you went down a sandy trail to the cabins in the middle of each cabin was a bathhouse bathhouse didn't have doors or windows bathhouse was open so at night when you had to go to the bathroom and you're a camper in your you know little cabin you had to traipse outside in the jungle through the snakes and the alligators and the scorpions and the spiders and whatever else was out there and go in a bathhouse that didn't have doors or windows and go in a stall that didn't have doors or windows and sit on a toilet that didn't have doors or windows and sit in there in the dark and just wait for something to come and devour you 
while you were going to the bathroom. I'm telling you, kids would go, some kids would go like four or five days without going to the bathroom at this camp. I mean, it was, it was for real. I'm talking for real jungle. And so in between the weekends, when you got to be a college student, you'd go the weekend before, it was a, a week for 7th and 8th grade, a week for ninth and 10th grade, and a week for 11th and 12th grade. And if you're a college kid, you'd set up the weekend before, counselor, stay the weekend, counselor, stay the weekend, counselor, and tear down the weekend after. I'm talking six weeks at Hilton Head. That's what we got once we were seniors and college students. And so we would put out lime around all the cabins because snakes don't like lime. And we'd try to keep the snakes away. But on the weekends, Andy, Stanley, and I would go out with another buddy or two, and we'd go out snake hunting just to kind of let the snakes know what's up, you know? Let them know we're here, and, and we're, we're going to be here for a couple of weeks now, and you don't want to mess with anything, so just go wherever you came from and let everything be peaceful. So we would go out into the grassy areas at night once it got dark with a flashlight in one hand and a baseball bat in the other hand, and we start looking for snakes in the grass. The grass would be about this deep. And so we're walking very carefully looking, and I'm not kidding. You would, at five minutes, bingo, I got one right here, copperhead. Three feet long, about this fat, just kind of cruising through the grass. And it's like, I got him. And what would you do? You would kind of look around, make sure, you know, brother or sister weren't right behind you because they might get angry when they saw it happen. And you just take your best shot and just pulverize that thing right on the head. Bam! And then what would you do? You'd hit it 50 more times on the head. Bam! 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 You'd hit it until its head was as thin as this piece of paper right here. And you're holding the light on it, and you're looking, yeah, one more, yeah, I can't recognize anything, bam, I don't even see anything that looks like a head, bam, and then what would you do? You would take, because it's kind of sandy soil, you take the bat barrel, you'd put it on the head, or what used to be, you'd grind it down into the dirt, grab the body, put your flashlight down facing, grab the body, and snatch it until you pop what was the head off of the body. Isn't that awesome? I'm thinking we're wearing tennis shoes, probably, you know, some shorts, crazy. And then you'd kick the sand back in the hole with your shoes, kind of pat it down over the remains of what was once the head. And then you'd pick up your flashlight and your snake by the tail. I don't know why we carried the snakes around, I guess, because it was like trophies or something. And you'd go looking for the next snake. After an hour, you'd have a dozen snakes by the tail. And you know what snakes do, even without their heads? They're just crawling all up your arm, wrapping themselves around. And I'm telling you, you're walking and you're trying to be cool and you're trying to know the, the heads are buried. I snapped them all off. I crushed them all beyond recognition. I buried them down in the earth. I popped that thing loose. I looked at it. There is no head on the end of this snake. So these are headless things crawling up my arm. And you keep telling yourself that. I know these don't have heads, but you're going, oh, oh, oh. And we'd all walk back up to the little center area where the, you know, the meeting buildings were, and we'd pile all the bodies up in the middle, and they just kind of writhe in a little pile headless, you know, for a while. I don't even remember what we did with them after that, something that probably wasn't great, probably terrorized somebody with them. And that's the best picture I can give us of the time-space theology of the finished work of Jesus. Satan has been defeated. He's done, has been defeated. Now, understand this. He's still real. And your giant has been defeated, but your giant is still deadly and dangerous. That's why we ground the heads into nothing and buried them in the sand. 
You know, if you had a rattlesnake in your backyard, maybe you know this, if not, it'd be a helpful thing to know. And you decided, you know, you saw it and you were going to kill it, so you took like a hoe or something and just chopped it in half, and eventually after, you know, withered, withered around for a while, it died. And then you just let it lay there, and eventually it kind of deteriorated, and all the skin kind of eventually died off, and you just had like a little skeleton of a snake there in your yard, say two months later. And you walked out into your yard barefoot two months later and stepped on the mouth of that rattlesnake. Poison would go out of the fangs and into your foot. Because that poison was spring-loaded there. And any pressure on that fang released that poison. Even two months after the snake is dead. And that's the very point that's a little bit like the theology we're trying to unfold. Satan is defeated. Amen? Is Jesus going to fight him anymore? No. He has rendered him powerless in his death, burial, and resurrection. But if you step on his fangs, he will still poison your foot. Because we're not in heaven yet. And the enemy is still at loose on planet earth. And he still has poison in his mouth and poison in his fangs. And if you listen to him, he will let that poison seep into your life. And it will diminish your hope and diminish your expectations of what your life can be. And before long, you may be praising God and accommodating a giant in your life. You may be praising God while there's an elephant in the room that's been there year after year after year, taunting God and tormenting you. And it's not because the giant is alive. It's just because we didn't know that we didn't have to step on its fangs anymore. That we didn't have to listen to its voice anymore. And not only that, that we could start talking to the giant. And we could listen to God talking to us about who we are. In Christ. You see, this is the power of the gospel. Jesus is David in the story. So Jesus has killed Goliath, and then David cuts his head off, which is really powerful. You know, he's already dead. Why didn't he just say, hey, he's dead? Why didn't he just go, well, look, he's dead, everybody. All right, congratulations, kid. You did it with one shot, man. That's, that's amazing. He's dead. He's not moving. Look, he's not breathing. Look, look, I'm, look, he's not moving. He's done. He's dead. David said, no, he's going to be dead, all right. I'll show you he is dead. The scripture says he had died, but David takes his sword out of the sheath little kid, and he lifts this big giant sword up, which we know is heavy because even with Saul's sword was hard for him to handle, but he gets it up in one big stroke with the power of God, and he chops Goliath's head off. Now, I don't know, but I hope it was one fell swoop because if he had to go at it like six or eight times, that's really gory and gross, and I'm not really sure I want to see that. I'm hoping that the weight of that thing just took it in one fell swoop. And then David, little kid, big giant, you know, he picks the head up. Don't you love that? Oh, not to show his brothers. He's showing the Philistine army. Here's your boy. Just a few minutes ago, that mouth right there was taunting my God. But I don't hear it talking right now. I don't hear it saying anything right now. You got anything to say now about our God, the God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? The God who spoke the universe into being, the God who created everything that is, the God of the angel armies is our God. And guess what? Goliath's not talking anymore. 
at the end of the day, Saul wanted to see David. He said, bring him here. Kid to kill the giant, bring him here. And David went to Saul's tent with Goliath's head. I know it's gory, but not so far back in all of our history, that's the way people fought. Can you imagine David rolling into the tent? Saul's ready to see you now. Hello, king, great king. Honor and blessing to you. King of my father, Jesse. Nice to see you, sir. And Saul's like, wow. That mouth for 40 days taunted God and humiliated, struck fear, intimidated his people. But now, mouth is silent. David spoke in the name of the Lord, and the giant stopped talking. So is there some mechanics in this? Yeah. Do we have to not conceal and confess? Yes. Do we have to step into the light and face the giant, name the giant, call it what it is, tell people around us, I got a giant? You know, the heads up on that is not too many people are going to be totally 100% shocked by your giant. Oh, some, in some cases, yes. But in most cases, they'll be like, yeah, I kind of knew. You're going to say to your kids, hey, dad's struggling with addiction to this pain medication. And your kids are going to go, yeah, we know. We've seen the bottles that you tried to hide. And we see the difference in you. know that you stole the money that we were going to use or what, whatever over here. We, we know. You're not going to tell your wife, honey, I just need to tell you. And she's going to go, you know, I kind of knew. You kids, you're not going to go to your parents and say, mom, dad, you need to sit down for a minute. They're going to go, yeah, we, we, we had a feeling. There are a few shockers, but not too many. And our part is to step into the process of bringing our giants into the light. But not so we can see them and kill them, so we can see them and proclaim to them that they are dead by the power of the name of Jesus. I'm telling you, we do not use the power of the name of Jesus. And we do not pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We, we rationalize with these giants. We argue with them. We shout at them. Uh, we, we talk to our friends about them. Uh, we, we get some uh, good book and read it about them. But we don't say to them, hey, you may be in the room, but I'm going to start talking back to you. You're coming at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, and you are fierce, and you do look bigger than me. But guess what? I'm not coming to you with me. I'm not coming to you with my strength, my armor, my ability, my power. I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. I'm coming at you in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to keep saying that name and saying that name and saying that name until I believe that Jesus is who I say he is. Listen, the giants already know who Jesus is. 
the demons know his voice and they tremble. It's the people of God who don't know who he is. Because we're looking up at how big they are and we're saying, oh man, this thing, my dad had this and my granddad had this and I guess I'm going to have this and it's just going to be there. And we don't know that we have a Jesus who has killed Goliath. And yeah, you can stick your foot in its mouth and it will poison you. But you can stick your word in its mouth and shut it down. You can do it in the power of Jesus. And so we're going to start talking about a few giants. I got a feeling we're going to hit really close to home in the next five weeks. Because I, I, I don't think we're struggling with a hundred giants. I got a feeling the five we're going to talk about are going to hit really close to home. And some of us are going to have more than one of them in the kitchen. But we're not going to rally cry the troops. Get your slingshots out, people. We're not going to call everybody to make it one good shot. We're going to rally around the gospel, which is that Jesus is fighting for us. And what he has won for us is real. And yes, we're going to have to participate with him. But we're going to do it in his power and for his glory. And I promise you, when we start talking like that, God says, I'm on your side. You fighting for my name now? I'm fighting for my name. I want your freedom, but I also want my name. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He died for our freedom, but he died for God's fame. He died to set us free, but he died to set God high and higher than any other name. He wanted to put to shame for once and for all, all the counterfeits, all the posers in the world, all the dagons in the world who said, I can be your God. I can be your God. I can be your defender. I can run the show. He said, no, we're going to finish all that off once and for all. And I'm going to prove that I am the one true Messiah and that my father is the one true God. He is just and the justifier. He's the one who can save the only one who can bring this heart to life again. He's the only deliverer. He's the only one after 40 days who can bring salvation to his people. He's the only one who can break the chains. He's the only one who can open the doors. He's the only one who can shut down the lies. He is God and there is no other. He is merciful and there is no God like him. He is a God of grace, a God of kindness, a God of compassion, a God of love, a God who would sacrifice his own son into the battle for you and for me. He is the Lord and there is no other God. That's what Jesus was thinking when he stretched his arms out to fight for you and to win for you. Victory not just in heaven, but victory, period. Over all the power of hell. And you know, it's interesting that where he died was a place called Golgotha, which means the skull. He took the head of Satan on when he died. And he shed his blood on a hill they called the skull. There's no clearer picture of death than a skull. A head of the enemy, which just steals and kills and destroys. And he said, on that 
Skull Hill, I will die. And I will win for my people freedom and victory. Your Goliath is dead. You say, yeah, I know, but it's still talking. I know. And you are going to start talking too. You're going to start talking God talk. You're going to start talking Jesus talk. You're going to start talking word talk. And you're going to stop listening and start talking. Stop listening to what he's saying. Start listening to what God is saying. And then you're going to start telling him what God is telling you. And I'm telling you in the power of the name of Jesus, stuff's going to shift and stuff is going to change. And that's our prayer today at the very beginning of this series is that maybe that's a tiny step, but it's a big leap for you to say right here, right now, I believe in the power of the name of Jesus. And it might not be a formula. It might not be magic. I might not pray a little prayer. All of a sudden my giant has gone away, but I have the name and the power and the authority of the blood of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I have the power of the cross, the power of his death, the power of his resurrection. I have the name of Jesus. And I'm telling you, my giant is big, but it is not bigger than the name of Jesus. And something's going to shift in me even today to believe Jesus is bigger than whatever it is I'm facing. Do you believe that today? I'm not trying to hype us up. You can't get any any higher than the pinnacle of the cross. And when all of our man-made enthusiasm, we we can't rise up to the God-brought victory that is ours. It's already there. We just have to have the Spirit of God pull us up into it. And it starts with changing our minds and believing that Jesus fought that day. And our giant fell that day. And if we let him, that same Jesus will lead us into that victory. Praise God. Goliath, not only will he fall, he must fall. Amen. He must fall so that Jesus can be exalted in this world.